as we follow along from we were, if you were here last Sunday morning or evening, uh, we come to a, a section in verse 13 to verse 17 in the first letter of Thessalonians, which is somewhat difficult to encapture in one theme. And uh, I would offer to you that I think the theme that we see here is the church is one. Unity, oneness amongst the people of God. Common aspects and attributes of what it means to be one in Jesus Christ. So let me say it like this. When you know the, the Lord, and when you know his message of salvation, and you meet another brother or sister, who may not be of your particular tribe or branch even, you sense a unity, a oneness, and that's what we are talk, going to be talking about today. I want to quote something. Some of you have probably run across it. If you perhaps have frequented and been in churches that are of perhaps a little more structured liturgical order, you will have come across two creeds. You will have heard people recite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And in the Nicene Creed, in the third paragraph, which is about the Holy Spirit, which begins, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, it then proceeds to say this, and it's four things it says, but the first word is the one I want to talk about today. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And I'll get it before anyone has a heart attack. The word Catholic there means universal. It simply means the whole church. Small c, in case you were wondering. But that old creed from the 4th century was trying to affirm and say something. The great invisible church of Jesus Christ, which is made up of all God's elect people, from all over, of all time, is one. And this visible church that you and I are part of, it has many branches, there's many different configurations, and yet when the message has been received, there is a unity, there is a oneness that takes place in that visible family of God. And so the Nicene Creed, whether or not you're familiar with it, is truth. We can believe and we know there is one holy, universal church of the Lord. And here this morning I want to look at three aspects of what Paul is saying about that one church as it relates to his epistle to the Thessalonians. Number one, there is a oneness in the word and the message of that word. Wherever you find and meet the true people of God, there is a oneness in the message that is of the word of God. Secondly, there is a oneness in the sufferings of the people of God in that unity of their afflictions. So there is a oneness in the word, 
There is a oneness in the afflictions, the sufferings of the church. And thirdly, there is a oneness in the fellowship of God's children. So word, afflictions, fellowship, unity, finding these three then. And these three are like here in the middle of chapter 2 to 3. They are like signs that are going off. Have you found that oneness yet? Have you seen it? Have you experienced it? Do you know it? So let's look at verse 13, which is one verse all around this theme of unity. Oneness is found in the message of Christ, which is the Word of God. Verse 13 needs a little unpacking just so that we can understand it. So just indulge me for a moment and I'll try to explain what is going on here in verse 13. Paul had been an evangelist to Thessalonica. There in Europe he was preaching the gospel. As he gave out a message, his message could be summarized very simply and very clearly. All men and women are sinners. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there is a Savior, the one who has died and borne the sins of his people at the cross, Jesus Christ. And when you have heard this message of being a sinner and of being pointed to the Savior, Jesus Christ, you are faced with a question. Have you received that message? Have you embraced that message, which is the word of God, come to you, not as the word of men, but as the message of God Almighty to your soul? And if you have said, I know I am a sinner, I knew I was a sinner and still am, but I know that there is a Savior for me, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am one of his, I have received that message, I have received that word, it is the word of God, and I know it in my soul that that is the word of God. Then, as a child of God, whenever you meet someone else who embraced those same things, you have met the one holy universal church. You are part of that body. Now, Paul is making these things, so he's basically saying, what a wonderful thing it was to see people welcome, receive this message. Not as it was only a human message, but as the true message of God's word. Not as some frail, silly, nonsensical yarn that men have created and fabricated, but reverently received with love, joy, the true work of the Holy Spirit. But not everyone will receive it this way. Not everyone will receive this message that I've just summarized to you. Not everyone is going to receive the word of this book. Many will dismiss it they will ridicule it. They will ignore it. They will say it is just a bunch of human fables that have been created and put together over various centuries. 
they will resist it because it confronts them about their sin. They will reject it because it demands transformation. And it will be put in the bin as not necessary. Ah, but you received it. As it really is the Word of God, the means that transforms you. Now, here is the point. This happened way up there in Macedonian Greece. Those of you at camp, you can just keep your camp going for another 24 hours then in the Thebes. There it happened, way up amongst these Gentile pagans of northern Greece. They heard the message, they received the message, they embraced the message, and they said, this is the word of God. But their background, their tribe, was so different from that way down in the city of Jerusalem, down in ancient Palestine. And there the apostle Peter, the fisher of men, was preaching. There's your review, campers. There was Peter preaching to a congregation that numbered in the thousands on the day of Pentecost. And they were Jewish people from all over, but they were Jews who loved the law of Moses and the prophets, whose heart had already been fixated upon the Scriptures. And when Peter gave that same message, that the promise of Moses was the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be the Lamb of God, who would be the one who would bear the sins of his people. They loved it, they embraced it, many of them. Some of them received it. And 3,000 were baptized that day. And so you look at it and you say, there was Peter's message. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. There's the summary, the conclusion. And there was the message, the word of God to the Jews. And the conclusion was, and so those who received his word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000. Now you notice here is the point. Here it is. The church is one. When a people embrace that message, which is the summary of the Word of God, there is one. Now, someone comes along and says, I think we're going to change the message. Ah, it's just too easy. It's too free. It's too gracious. That it's just the Lamb of God and His blood that covers your sins and pardons you and cleanses you. And as your atoning sacrifice. We believe that the message needs to be added to. The message of Peter, the message of Paul, needs a few things added to it, and we're going to add them to it. And the first thing is, if you're a man, every man must be circumcised, and then we'll know they're real believers. 
You see, here's the challenge in Acts 15. There is a message. There is unity. And they were rejoicing in that oneness between Jew and Gentile. But some came along and said, that message isn't enough. It's Jesus plus this and this and this. And once you get it right by following all the ceremonial law, then we'll know you're one with us. And the Jerusalem brothers and elders and the brethren met together. And they said, oh no. There is one family, one body, and it's one message. Jesus' sufficient work of sovereign grace in him. And don't add to it. Because the old order has now ended and the, the dividing partition wall has been broken. And there is no longer a need for further sacrifices. It's finished, over, done. The blood of atonement is sufficient in Christ. So there was a challenge to that oneness, and there always has been, and there always will be. You'll find it probably even this afternoon, if you think about it, with some group you will encounter or meet or talk about or even consider reading about. But Paul says here, here is the thing. I have sensed and seen and bear testimony to the one family who have embraced and received this message, which is the word of God. How wonderful it is to a preacher to see people who embrace the Word, love the Word, that you know the Holy Spirit has been at work. It was a wonderful thing this week at our camp just to see that, and uh, I just make a, a comment about it. What a joy it was to see young people and children and staff and counselors respectfully hearing, listening, kindly receiving with an eagerness. That is wonderful to see. And Paul would have been rejoicing to find people who were willing to assemble and to receive that word. And may it have been received and be received in our hearts with sincere faith and grace. So brother, so sister, do you rejoice when you meet another brother or sister who has embraced that message and loves that word. And if you are sitting here today and you are saying, I dismiss this book. I don't want it. I would say to you, beware and really satisfy your intellectual curiosities. And make sure that you have not rejected the real truth. Beware. And I challenge you to turn again with your intellectual curiosity to find resolution. Paul goes then from the unity that is found in the oneness that we find in the Word now to a whole new little section in verse 14 to 16, which is about oneness in suffering, but to, it seems like it needs a bit of explaining first. And I must tell you this, that in these 
little verses, verse uh, number 14 to 16, people sometimes get confused by it because they, they turn to it, and even genuine Christians sometimes are confused because they'll say, Paul's on a rant. Now, you know about a rant. If you live in a house, sometimes you might even say, oh, mother's on a rant today. <laughs> Stay clear, right? Don't get too close. Because she's on a rant, and whatever comes near her, or maybe father not wanting to pick on mother, they're on a rant. You know what I mean, don't you? You smile, and I see it. And some people read this, and they come, Paul's on a rant. And they misinterpret it. They get way off track, and they say, Paul's on a rant. He's in a rant against the Jews, all the Jews. And they put that word all in there. They, they really like putting that word all in against all the Jews. And he is anti-Semitic. He is a hater of the Jews. Now, you just think about this a little bit. Like, is Paul in a rant against the Jews here? Uh, he's, is he a Nazi? And you know, you'll get people saying, ah, this is where a bit of Nazism comes out in the Bible, and you sort of say, just a second, folks. Read it as it says, not the way you want it to be read. And let me say to you here, Paul is not in a rant against the, all the Jews. No, he's not. But what he is saying is this. I have seen two groups. I've seen you Gentiles up in Thessalonica that are predominantly Gentile converts, believers, experiencing terrible persecution and sufferings for your faith. And I look way down at Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, I see Jewish believers who are believing in Jesus the Messiah, and I see the same thing. They are suffering for their faith in the sufferings and the afflictions of Jesus Christ. And what do I conclude? This is what I conclude. You're one. You're one sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. Now Paul uses his word that he loves. He loves this word in Thessalonians, in this epistle. He, here he uses it. We saw it yesterday or last Sunday. Now we see it again today. He uses it a little differently from chapter 1, verse 6, now to chapter 2 and verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God way down in Judea. Now you're different tribe, different background, Gentile, Jew, but you all have oneness in this fellowship of the sufferings and the afflictions of God's people. There it is again. You imitate them. You look like them, but you don't look like them. You're different backgrounds, but spiritually, you look the same. And what is it that looks the same? You have courage. You do not cave in to the temptation to compromise. And that you have the perseverance 
of the saints amidst the sufferings by your own clansmen, kinsmen, and tribe who have now turned against you because you have embraced Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying is, the Jews have turned against their own brother Jews who have embraced Jesus, and they're afflicting persecution. But they, these believers have courage, and they resist compromise and temptation. And they are persevering in Jesus. It's a mark of real Christianity, the perseverance of the saints. And I look here up in Thessalonica, different tribe, different people. Ah, but the same courage, the same resistance to temptation and compromise, the same persevering of the saints when they have been rejected by their fellow tribesmen because of Jesus. And I see the unity in the sufferings of the Lord. Now, if you open your bulletin this morning, what do you see? You see a perfect illustration of the unity, of the oneness, of the sufferings of God's body. So you see a story. You read a story. You see an image. And you say, ah, we're one in the sufferings of the body of Christ. We're praying for them to have courage to resist temptation and compromise and to be persevering saints. We are together. We're one in the sufferings of the affliction of the church. Now, I sort of teased it out, but let me explain the rest of it. Here in verses 14 to 16, Paul's rant. Let me return to that for a moment so that you don't go home confused. Paul is concerned about a particular aspect of the Jews in Jerusalem, I believe. And he is also prophetically, I think, talking about something which is about to soon come. What happened in April, Passover, 70 AD? Jerusalem fell. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed. It was the end of temple sacrifice. It was also the end of the Pharisees, basically. Many things happened. What took place in 70 AD was this. As the Jews were coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, three days before the Passover, the siege against Jerusalem began. The Roman army began to pour in from various directions and courts and gates around Jerusalem, breaking through the first wall, the second wall, coming to the third wall. Josephus, who I think may be slightly exaggerating, although it very well could be true, said that during the Passover there were at least a million Jews in the three regions of Jerusalem and in the vicinity of the villages of Jerusalem. One million Jews. 70 AD, the week of the Passover. 
The Roman army comes in because Jewry is appointing itself as a self-proclaimed, basically, government region. You don't do that in the Roman Empire. No one does. And so the Roman army comes into Jerusalem. And the persecution against all Jews and the massacre of the Jews begins. It is the largest pogrom against the Jewish people in history up until probably the Nazi era in Germany. Perhaps one million Jews either were put to death or many fled in exile, many were taken into slavery, and many were put into servitude for the rest of their lives. Now, Paul has this little rant, as people call it here. But he is using a particular time frame. When you hinder the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beware. God in his memory does not forget. God in his memory does not forget. When a nation suppresses the word of God. When a people group throw themselves against the word of God, beware. The wrath of God will come. It may not come tomorrow, but it will come. And what you see here is a little bit of a prefigurement. Jewry of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, as a whole, had rejected the Savior. They had turned against the Lord Jesus. They were persecuting the Christians intensely. And Jesus had said, beware. And so in 70 AD, the Roman armies, a secular, unbelieving people, come through the city of Jerusalem. Wall after wall is destroyed. Fire across the whole city, and only a few columns are remaining. The great golden menorah of the Jewish people. The candelabra of the seven candlesticks. The light inside the temple is removed and taken to Rome. And there Titus will build his famous arch that you can still see today in the city of Rome. And there on it is the Jewish menorah. Because Rome in 70 A.D. destroyed the Jewish city of Jerusalem and the wrath of Rome was unleashed. Now, 
Paul is not a hater of the Jews. He is not an anti-Semite. He is not a Nazi. He is the one who will go from city to city, town to town, village to village, always seeking out the Jews until they have rejected him. He is the one who by the Holy Spirit will write Romans chapter 11, and you may interpret it various ways, but take the bottom line as this. There is at least optimism and hope for an ingathering of many Jews. God is not finished here in Thessalonians, verse 16, with the Jewish people, all of them. There is still hope for many within Jewry. Otherwise, you would say Paul's a schizophrenic. He's not. And what he is saying is particular. And it's a word of warning. When you raise your hand against the message of the Word of God and the servants of the Lord, beware. One day, the remembrance of God will be born. That's what Paul is saying. But we are one in the suffering of his people. One holy universal church. One in the word, one in common sufferings of affliction. And now the final section, verse 17 to 19 and 20 there. We are one because we long for fellowship with each other. Paul has been torn out in his heart. He's been torn away from the Thessalonians because of persecution. It's like he has been orphaned from his children. And he wants to be back with his children. He's their mother, their father. And he has been torn away, and they're like his orphans. But he wants them back, and he wants to get back to them. And so you see here in verse 17 to 20, this intense longing for fellowship with them concern for them, for their brotherhood. And he, he, he uses that word over and over again as he speaks. You, my, my brothers, my, my comrades. You remember how the, the communists and the Bolsheviks and others have used that term, uh, comrade, camaraderie, the brotherhood. Well, here is the brotherhood. But the brotherhood wants to see each other, wants to be with each other, wants to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. Now, brothers and sisters, if you have no desire for the fellowship of the saints, you are called an anemic Christian. You're not going to be healthy. Fellowship is critical in the life of God's people. And when you can't have it, you should feel there's something wrong about this. And Paul feels it. There's something wrong here. I long for it. I want to see it. Now, he, he diagnoses the problem. He puts it down as a spiritual problem, actually. He says Satan is a little bit behind this. He is behind it in some way, and he's very careful. He is not going to extremes. He's not ignoring Satan, but he's not totally absorbed at the same time. Paul is always careful. 
and he realizes that there are spiritual hindrances at war to stop the fellowship of the saints of God. And he calls it satanic, but he's careful about it. He's not overly fascinated. He, he makes it as a passing comment, and then it's like he moves on. But the point of it all, you can summarize it as this. I believe in one holy universal church. One that seeks fellowship with the saints of God. What is the great summary statement by Luke in Acts 2 verse 42? And they were together in Jerusalem and they devoted themselves to four things, yes, to the ministry of the word, the apostles' teaching the breaking of bread, prayer, and the fellowship. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, in person, but not in my heart, it's like his heart still wants to pump with prayer and affection and love and a return. He wants to return to be there. He wants to experience and to have the oneness. Now perhaps Paul is ending with a little testimony that maybe he thinks he'll never get back again to see them. And maybe you have parted with some Christians and you've said, I, I'm not sure I'll ever be back there again to see that Christian. And it's a sad parting because you know you will never see that Christian brother or sister on earth again. And maybe Paul says at the very end of that chapter to console himself. We're one in fellowship. But even if I don't get back to you, I look for one day sitting all together at the one table at the glory of the coming of Jesus. We'll be together again. It's like he takes the long view. But you have to start the short view here. To find the oneness of the fellowship now. In anticipation of that which is to come. Well, let me conclude by quoting something to you from John Piper, which I think is helpful. Because this is all about unity and oneness, but you and I live in the real visible Christian church, where sometimes, like Paul, oneness is hard to discern. And there's like some amb ambiguities let me quote to you from John Piper, the Baptist out there in the Midwest in America. When all is said and done, ambiguities remain. Ambiguities. Things are not always quite as neat as you'd like them to be. What kind of boundaries should define local churches? Schools, denominations, conferences, camps, parachurch ministries. Nevertheless, 
we are not without anchors. We are not without a rudder and sails. We have the stars above and we have the sextant in reliance on the Word and the Spirit in humility we will arrive home together. Yes, friends, there are some ambiguities in the visible church. And the boundaries that sometimes will be confusing. But nevertheless, we're not without anchors. And I think it's brilliant the way Piper has said it. We are not without rudder and sail. We have the stars above and the trusty sextant in reliance on the word and the spirit in humility. We will arrive home together. I believe. Do you believe? There is oneness when the word is received. As Jesus said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Of those who share in the common sufferings of the persecuted, suffering church, we are one in the sufferings of Jesus. I believe in the one fellowship of the saints. They are the comrades the brothers, the sisters, for we love the fellowship of his children. I believe the church is one. Amen. Let us pray.